Hey everyone, it's Dylan Roach, just an ordinary guy trying to make sense of the world around me. Thanks for joining me on the journey. I really hate that word journey, it sounds so pretentious, but okay, whatever, thanks for joining me. Let's figure out what I'm talking about today. Okay, so what am I talking about today? Uh, okay, so if you know me, or if you've done your homework and stalked me online, uh, no worries if you haven't. Uh, I'm, I'm really not all that interesting or attractive, so I might not be worth stalking online. But um, anyway, uh, I am a runner, and I'm currently training for a pretty intense season of marathons and other races that I've got coming up. Um, and I am admittedly not the most responsible runner. I don't take rest days. I don't spend a lot of money on fancy shoes. I go running in the dark without any reflective gear. I, I basically am a running death wish. Um, but the one thing that I do have going for me is, uh, you know, I try to fuel myself correctly by eating properly. And lucky for me, I recently got the chance to interview Dr. Shannon O'Grady of Gnarly Nutrition. Um, and I was able to ask her a few questions about properly fueling for training and racing. So let's hear what she had to say. Let's say I'm training for a marathon because I am training for a marathon. <laughs> what, um, what is something that a, a marathon trainer or a marathon runner should think about when they're planning out fueling themselves? Yeah. So I like that you said planning out. And that's the first thing that I like to talk about, because I think a lot of people don't necessarily practice their race day nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, they think of the race day as this kind of goal that's in isolation from the training. And really, you should do exactly what you said, plan out your, your nutrition and practice exactly what you're going to do on race day during your long runs to get it dialed. The reason is, as we know, there's the old adage, don't try anything new on race day. You need to make sure that your stomach is gonna be happy with the fuel that you're choosing, with the quantity of the fuel you're choosing. You need to make sure that you're getting in enough fuel to last you know, the length of time it's gonna take for you to do the race. So that's the first thing I like to talk about. People might use different products, they might use different quantities, but whatever it is, whatever you're going to use, whatever your solution is, make sure you're practicing. Sure. Um, and then if we take a step back and we look at what actually you would be consuming at what you have beforehand, particularly for a marathon length distance is particularly important. So thinking about pre-race meals, what time does your race start? So um, that's going to tell you maybe how early you might have to get up. Some people like to get up you know, two to three hours early to get something solid in their, in their stomachs. And that gives them plenty of time to digest and assimilate those nutrients. Um, and for some people, if they're good sleepers, they'd rather, you know, get a good night's sleep and maybe have a smaller meal closer to the start time. So that could look, you know, anywhere from like 30 minutes to an hour before starting, but trying to get some carbohydrates in your body, because a lot of people don't realize that, while we're sleeping, our body's essentially fasting. And so if we wake up and we exercise right away, we're kind of starting with our, our gas tank half full. And so having something that your body can 
break down easily and you can kind of fill up that gas tank with is going to put you in a better place to start the race. So that's important both in terms of carbohydrate intake and also really important in terms of hydration. Sure. Now you, you mentioned getting something that's going to like break down easily. What are some yeah. really good, like easily digestible things that we should be eating pre-training or pre-race? Yeah. So, I mean, if we go back and let's say you are the person that's going to wake up two to three hours before start time, then you can have something that maybe is a little more complex. And when I'm saying complex, I mean, uh, complex carbohydrates, maybe a little bit of protein. Um, so that could look like uh, a bowl of oatmeal with a little bit of protein powder on it, or it could look like some, you know, pancakes with some fruit and, uh, maybe, you know, a little bit of bacon or sausage on the side. It could look like a bagel with some nut butter and banana on it. Um, that meal should be primarily carbohydrates. If you are able to get, you know, two to three hours out, then you could look for maybe about three to 400 calories for, you know, that total quantity of carbohydrates. Um, you want a little bit of protein. The reason why a little bit of protein is helpful is your body's going to break down those amino acids and those amino acids circulating in your system are really going to help minimize muscle protein breakdown, which is inevitably what makes us sore after. So it's kind of like kickstarting the recovery process. And then you want to minimize fat and fiber. And the reason why we want to minimize those isn't because they're bad, but they slow down the rate of digestion. So the closer you get to start time, the lower in fat and fiber your meal should be, potentially also the lower in protein. And then we should really be prioritizing simple carbohydrates. So this is where fruit is a good option. Um, any kind of like, uh, maybe you use like an energy gel or some of those food-based gels, that would be a good option. Um, even, a, a, you know, a carbohydrate-based uh, electrolyte drink, like Gnarly's Fuel 2.0 has carbs and electrolytes. And then it's also about hydration. There are a number of products like that. Um, so you're getting in calories and you're hydrating at the same time. Um, but if you're taking in that kind of meal, you know, in the 45 minutes to the hour before your start time, it, you want it to be substantially smaller. Um, so then we're looking at maybe 100 to 150 calories. Sure, sure. And how about hydration? How much water or, or fluid should be, people be taking in before a race? You know, I, that also depends on how close you are, right? We don't want to chug 24 ounces of water 30 minutes before we start. Right. Um, for a long time, they thought that that could contribute to uh, cramping. When I was in graduate school, I uh, did this, helped with this study where they had me chug a bunch of water and then run on, run on a treadmill and look at whether or not it developed cramps. But it can definitely, whether it, you know, helps with cramp development, it can lead to discomfort. Yeah. Um, so the closer we are to start time, the less water we should be consuming. Um, I'd say that two to three hour meal out, maybe in the range of, of 18 to 24 ounces, as we get closer to start time, it may be more like eight to 12 ounces. But once again, this is something that's very individual, you know, like most nutrition and something you should practice before, you know, your long runs building up to race day. Sure. And how about after, like after the race, what's the, I've heard, I've heard people mention like, you know, after a, a hard workout, you should be doing that like three to one ratio of carbohydrates to protein. Is that a good rule of thumb or should I just eat whatever is in sight? Yeah. Well, I mean, a little bit of both. 
Um, So I definitely think it's good to be mindful of that. I usually say three to four to one, depending Uh on um, how glycogen depleting glycogen is our storage form of carbohydrates in our body. So the more we kind of deplete that storage form of carbohydrates, the more carbohydrates we need to take in afterwards to bring it back up to saturation. Um, So it's always a good rule of thumb. And if you're paying attention to, you know, the grams of carbohydrates versus protein, then more power to you, that's great. But if you're not, and you just think about having a meal, you know, or some food that is rich in carbohydrates and has a little bit of protein, that'll get you started. Awesome. Awesome. And then is it, and I have to ask this because I've done ultras and I've done like trail races where I'm out there all day. Yeah. How do I nourish myself and fuel myself when I'm out on the trail for like, you know, eight or nine hours at a time? Yeah. So that's, it's, it's definitely a little bit of a different beast. You know, this is when getting in the pre-race meal becomes more important trying to maybe take in more carbohydrates before your race day becomes more important. Um, and practicing some nutrition, uh, beforehand is extremely important. Um, but typically you want to get in a range of at least 60 grams of carbohydrates to kind of the upper end for many people is close to 90 grams. There are people that can take in more than that, but it takes what, you know, science calls training your gut to, to really assimilate that many carbohydrates. So when we're talking in grams, you know, that's 240 calories to about 360 calories. Um, and you want to try to get that in on an hourly basis. There's going to be a fair amount of variation in that. Um, you know, we hear now more about athletes becoming fat adapted and getting used to using their fat stores, um, not taking in fat as a fuel, but using their fat stores that they have on board, even the leanest athlete stores, tens of thousands of calories, you know, in fat stores. So the more fat adapted you are, your body's used to using those fat stores, potentially the lower carbohydrate intake you might have to take in. So, you know, you might be with a friend that's been doing ultras for 20 years and they might only need to take in 200 calories. But if this is your first ultra, it's probably in your benefit to try to practice getting closer to that higher end. So Uh closer to that 90 grams. Consistency is the key, especially in an ultra. We don't want to get in a hydration deficit. We definitely don't want to get in a fueling deficit. So I always, when, you know, when I run ultras, I like to set the timer on my watch for every 20 to 30 minutes as a reminder, um, you know, to eat and drink because, you know, we're trying to figure out where we're going. We're paying attention to what's around. We're hopefully enjoying the scenery and, and, you know, the beautiful place that we are and the experience. And it's easy to forget to eat and drink. So having that little reminder that tells you like, Hey, it's been 20 minutes. Make sure you take a swig of your water bottle and eat some food um, is a great thing. And then the one thing I'll also say with post-race nutrition, because ultras are definitely glycogen depleting, it's you go you go a step further. So that three to four to one is great, but actually um, they recommend taking in, and this gets you know the grams per kilogram for body mass, but about 1.2 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body mass okay. every hour for the four to six hours following your race. So once again, if you're not like weighing out your food and paying attention to grams of carbohydrates, the take home message is 
for the four to six hours following your race, make sure you eat carbohydrates consistently. And that's going to help you with turnaround. And in reality, if you're training for an ultra, your long runs are probably that, that long. And then you have to train the next day or potentially have a long training um, session the next week. And so that's when it becomes particularly important because you want to recover fast. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's actually a, a question I had is, is, you know, how do you ensure fast recovery? If I'm, because like, I know for me, I run every single day and sometimes I wonder, am I really nourishing myself the way that I should? Am I fueling myself the way that I should? How do I know whether I'm doing it right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, on longer runs, right? We can run every day, but maybe maybe it's only 60 to 90 minutes. And you know, we're, it's not glycogen depleting. We're not dipping into our glycogen stores. We're eating, we're making sure we're eating enough food to fuel um, our, our endeavors you know, throughout the day. That's really important. But when we get to those longer runs where we are expending more calories and potentially we're doing two a days or we're doing back-to-back -back long runs, that becomes a concern. And that's where making sure you're fueling enough during your race, making sure you're really pay paying attention to that post-race nutrition, getting in enough protein, both over the course of your day, um, but then also particularly after your run, because the protein breaks down into amino acids hopefully you're choosing proteins that's high in essential amino acids. Those essential amino acids are the building block for muscle. And that's what helps us, you know, repair muscle that's um, potentially been broken down during our runs and also build new muscle that's going to functionally help us, you know, gain strength in running. And so um, carbohydrates are really important for fuel, um, you know, in terms of recovery, but protein is also really important for giving our muscles what they need to, to be repaired. And then I'll also say this, I think people, um, you know, for a long time, you know, we went through the fat shaming in the eighties. Now we're in the carb shaming in the, you know, present day, I'm hoping that we'll get to a point where we don't shame any of the macronutrients, but fat is also really important for recovery. Endurance athletes store fat in their muscles and that those are the fat stores that become really important. Um, for use in low intensity running, which endurance sports, you know, fall into that classification. So also making sure you're getting enough healthy fats in your diet. Um, so you're, you're in a good place with those stores is, is important. Oh, that's good to know. Okay. That's very good to know, especially because, you know, I'm a peanut butter junkie. So that's, that's my chosen source of, of um, healthy fat and, and protein. And actually, yeah. so like, so I'm a vegan and I know that like I tend to, you know, and I know that like other people have dietary restrictions. Some people have, you know, allergies or food intolerances or that they're eating a certain way for religious reasons. If somebody has dietary restrictions, are there ways for them to navigate that and still eat best to fuel themselves? A hundred percent. Yeah. So, um, we can start with veganism or, or plant-based athletes, right? We hear, I, I hear so much, you know, oh, plant proteins aren't complete. And in reality, that's not true. Um, you know, the definition of a complete protein is if all nine essential amino acids are present. You do have plant proteins that might be lower in one or two essential amino acids. And that's where the idea of combining complementary proteins, something like a grain and something like a legume, 
um, to bring up levels of amino acids that both are low, you know, both might be low in. Um, there's also uh, a lower level of digestive efficiency as far as plant proteins. And that's just because plant proteins typically have more fiber um, that might mean we don't see all of the amino acids in a plant protein. That fiber is really important for our gut too. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. You might just need to eat a little bit more protein to make up for that. And then, you know, the other kind of major difference between plant pro protein and animal-based proteins with the presence of the branched-chain amino acid leucine. So branched-chain amino acids are really important for kind of kickstarting muscle protein synthesis, um, which is that process that helps us with, you know, muscle building and muscle repair. You know, another solution to that is simply eating more protein. So you get higher levels of leucine or introducing maybe a, a branched-chain amino acid supplement. Um, Gnarly has vegan BCAAs and there are another or, or abundance of, of products out there that are either BCA, standalone BCAAs or standalone um, essential amino acids and introducing something like that maybe before your run and then making sure you're getting really high quality um, protein, whole protein after your run from food or maybe a, a vegan you know, protein shake is a great idea. Plant-based proteins like pea protein and soy protein come pretty darn close to animal-based proteins um, as far as amino acid content. So they're really, you know, minimizing the difference between the two. And, and I would put them on par with a lot of other animal-based proteins. So I think you can do it. You just have to be a little more mindful of the differences between the two. And I would pass that on to almost any kind of, uh, you know, dietary restriction or choice that might you know, restrict what you're taking in, um, whether it's plant-based or maybe it's, you know, an allergy to soy or an allergy to gluten or allergy to milk, right? All of those can restrict where we get our, our protein and our carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Now you mentioned a while ago and, and, you know, that people might be having, you know, gels, um, or, or things like that when they're out on the, you know, when they're out on the race course, um, what should people be looking for in nutrition products like that or in hydration products, such as the ones that Gnarly, um, such as the one that Gnarly has, or should people be looking for certain ingredients, certain nutrients? Should they be wary of anything? What, what's kind of the best way of making choices there? Sure. Dylan, I have to take some carbohydrate-based muffins out of my oven. And awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, let me grab them out and then I will uh, I'll answer your question. Sure. Um, I love to bake and my kids love it when I bake. Good. Um, okay. So great question. And I'd say the first thing to look for is just kind of a general category. And that's in terms of product quality. Um, so I think for a long time, supplements have gotten a bad name and a lot of people think that supplements aren't regulated by the FDA. In fact, they are, um, supplements actually have tighter regulations than food. The problem is, is that there are so many supplement companies that pop up randomly that the FDA has trouble enforcing those regulations. Um, and that's where third-party quality, quality uh, certifications come in. So, uh, for example, Gnarly is NSF certified. 
Um, NSF is a group that certifies manufacturing of all types, but they um, specifically uh, work with supplement manufacturers and brands to make sure the products are safe, that they meet the label claims that they're claiming, and that they're free of contaminants. So there are two different levels of NSF certification. There's um, content certification. And in that case, manufacturers are inspected twice a year um, to make sure that they're following regulations. Uh, the products that are NSF for content certified are tested for label claim, which means that everything that you see on a supplement facts panel, if it tells you there's a thousand milligrams of vitamin C, that product is tested to make sure per serving you're getting that much. Um, they're also tested for contaminants like microbes, heavy metals, and a full pesticide screen. Um, and then uh, they're also, the formulations are evaluated by a safety panel to make sure that all of the amounts of ingredients are safe for a person, you know, in terms of the way the brand is recommended um, that you take it in. There's another level of NSF certification that uh, some gnarly products have, which is called NSF for sport certification. So this goes a step further that those products have to meet all of the content certified requirements that I just talked about. But then every lot of that product that's manufactured is tested for um, about 300 substances that are on the World Anti-Doping Agency banned substances list. So these are things that professional athletes are tested for, but also things that like recreational athletes like us don't really want in our bodies. Um, so it's a way to know that your product is meeting the standards, is safe, is what you're paying for. Um, and, you know, it, it, it really is kind of the, the gold standard. There are other companies like USP is a similar company, US Pharmacopeia that certifies uh, brands for um, label claim and contaminant uh, testing. Uh, Informed Choice is another certifying group that also tests that also tests for banned substances, um, and I think Consumer Lab might be another one that has just sprouted up. So there are certifying you know groups out there, and and you'll see you can go and look on their website. Like NSF lists lists all the the products that are um, certified under them on their website. I think USP does the same thing. Um, so you can find a certification and testing regime you feel comfortable with and then look up what brands, you know, have been tested. And most brands will have that little seal on their product so you can tell um, whether or not they're they're third party certified. Awesome. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. So I think I think that really touches on all the questions I have. Is there anything, you know, that we should ask that I haven't or anything that you want to make sure that we talk about or we get a chance to touch on? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it just goes back to, I tried to say it a few times that different things work for different people and it takes practice. So, you know, your buddy who runs with you might use one particular product and that product might not sit well in your stomach. So make sure you try lots of different brands, um, find brands that are, you know, based in, in science. So they don't, make crazy claims about, you know, take this and you're going to run the Olympics. That's, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but you do find products out there that make uh, pretty insane claims. And if they are making uh, crazy claims like that, it's usually marketing. So mm -hmm. find a product, find a product that, you know, cites scientific studies for the reason why they've included certain ingredients in their products um, and certain amounts of ingredients 
buying products that list all of the um, amounts of particular ingredients on their label. Nowadays, you see lots of products that have proprietary blends. There's nothing proprietary about supplements. Um, typically, that's just a way for a company to get around testing or for not to not to tell you um, how much of each ingredient is exactly in their product. So um, look for companies that are transparent with their formulations and that are forthcoming with uh, the science behind the reasoning um, for those formulations. Excellent. Awesome. Well, Shannon, thank you so much. Wow. So uh, I don't know about you guys, but I sure learned a lot from Shannon. Uh, Gnarly Nutrition was also good enough to send me some samples of their stuff. Uh, so I got some electrolyte hydration powder and some vegan protein powder. And I'll say this much. I love both of them. They've really helped me feel my best when I have a tough week of running. Um, I've been making some smoothies with the protein powder, and I really like how it has, you know, it has a great taste. It blends well. It's not too sweet, um, and it does a really great job of keeping me feeling satiated, uh, especially when all of that running tends to make me really hungry. So if you're looking for a great protein powder option or a great, uh, you know, great powder for mixing up an electrolyte drink, Gnarly Nutrition gets my enthusiastic endorsement. Uh, so there you go. Um, now, as I said in the last episode, I wish I could say that this podcast was going to be a consistent thing and I could tell you all check back next week or two weeks from now uh, for the next episode. But at this point, I really don't know uh, how consistent it's going to be. Um, but, you know, I'm a journalist and I'm full of questions. So there will definitely be more interviews at some point. Until then, folks, see you later. Stay inspired.